I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. It's a rather lengthy passage tonight that is the subject before us. We're not going to read all of it. We're going to read the first section and then make reference to the remainder of it and encourage you to go back and read the entirety of it on your own. And we are continuing on in our series, The Transforming Power of Life with God, with an emphasis on prayers of adoration and how these prayers of adoration really set the tone in our prayer lives and in our relationship with God. Uh, I gave you a quick overview of the series the last time that we were together on the importance of walking with God daily and how we come by invitation to the throne of God and we draw near to him, he draws near to us and we walk with him and he purifies our hearts as we humble ourselves before him. Tonight is prayers of adoration, then we'll focus on prayers of confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and finally a little bit lengthier emphasis on praying for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. The premise for this entire study is that the Christian life is about life with God. We sometimes clutter what it means to be a Christian. Uh, We sometimes complicate it, but when it comes down to it, The Christian life is about life with God. James Montgomery said, we may, we must draw near, and we perish if we cease from prayer. Adoration is the spontaneous yearning of the heart to worship, honor, and magnify God. We ask nothing but to cherish him when we're thinking about uh, our adoration of him, and we focus on nothing but his goodness. And I think for all of us, if we're honest, we'll say that prayer is hard work. Sometimes we get discouraged in it. Uh, Sometimes we can grow weary. Sometimes, just transparently, we don't know what to say in prayer. But when we pray prayers of adoration, what it helps us to do is to focus our prayers as they should on God. Uh, The Hebrew word in uh, the Old Testament that is translated as worship And then again, in the New Testament, the word that is translated as worship, both mean to bow before or to revere. The root word means literally to kiss the ground in reverence for someone. And adoration and worship are closely related, but they're not exactly the same. Adoration and worship are reserved for God alone. And praise is a part of adoration, but it goes beyond praise in our adoration to the heart of what we believe about God. So this is as much a posture of how we pray as it is the specifics of how we pray. And when we pray in adoration to God, we are worshiping, but we are expressing the specifics of adoring God And we're simply coming before him in awe and in wonder of who he is. Our context for this particular focus is 1 Kings chapter 8. And it's on Solomon's temple. It's known as the first temple. The first temple existed between the 10th and the 6th century B.C. approximately. The Bible, specifically the book of Kings includes a detailed narrative about its construction. You remember that God did not permit David to build it because he was a man of war, but David did gather resources for the building of it. 
And the temple was itself not including all of the outer courts and everything that went along with it, but the building itself was about 90 feet by 30 feet, twice the size of the tabernacle that they had followed in the wilderness. Someone estimated, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but based on the description of the gold that was contained in the temple, it would take over $2 billion today to build it, just the gold alone, not including the cedar and the bronze and the labor or the craftsmanship. So this was a very important centerpiece of worship for the people of Israel, and it was done with precision according to how God had instructed them to build it. First Kings 8 recounts all of Israel assembling at Jerusalem for this opening ceremony of the temple. The temple would not operate until the Ark of the Covenant was set in the most holy place. So the priest took up the Ark exactly how God said to do it. They were not going to repeat the error of David in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Nothing was in the ark at that point except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb. Earlier on, there were three items, including the golden pot that had the manna, as well as Aaron's rod that budded. When they prepared the temple, they also brought the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense from the tabernacle into the temple. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple manifested in a cloud. This is the cloud that stood by Israel in the wilderness. It's the cloud of glory that God spoke to Israel from. It's the cloud from which God met with Moses. It's the cloud that stood by the door of the tabernacle. And it's also the cloud of Ezekiel's vision. The cloud represented the glory and the majesty of God, but more importantly, the temple itself did. And Solomon noted that he had built God an exalted house. It was a place that symbolized the dwelling of God among his people forever. Now, admittedly, Solomon also said he understood well that no building made with hands could contain our great God. But he knew that this symbolized it, and it also pointed forward to us being indwelled by the Holy Spirit uh, permanently. And Solomon offers up this speech of dedication before the people, noting that all of this was in fulfillment of God's plan, and he and his father David were instruments in God's hands. Then he turns in a prayer focus toward God, and he spreads out his hands toward heaven which was a common posture for prayer in the Old Testament. We often think of closing our eyes and bowing our heads and maybe even folding our hands when we pray. But this was a tradition of spreading out the hands toward heaven, and it symbolized surrender, openness, and a ready reception for whatever God was going to do in their midst. It was a sense of reverence and humility there was a seriousness about it, and there was also a fervency in the prayer. Now, the scripture indicates that Solomon stood before the altar. This was in the court of the people. This is not in the most holy place. There was a brazen scaffold put up for the occasion, fronting the altar of the burnt offering and surrounded by the people. So you can get in your mind's eye what it must have been like 
with all the people gathered for this special occasion, and he was greatly moved. And what I want to caution us about, even as we read a portion of the scripture, is not just to pull out the technical aspects of the prayer so that we can easily apply them for our lives. I want us to think in terms of a prayer that was delivered from an overflowing heart. This was an imperfect man serving imperfect people, but this was a passionate prayer to a great God. And I think when we approach it in that way, we'll see the significance of it. I want to begin reading here in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire congregation of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below who keeps the gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept what you promised to your servant, my father David. You spoke directly to him and you fulfilled your promise by your power as it is today. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, keep what you promised to your servant, my father David. You will never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons take care to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, Lord God of Israel, please confirm what you promised to your servant, my father David. Verse 27, but will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Lord my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you today, so that your eyes may watch over this temple night and day toward the place where you said, my name will be there, and so that you may hear the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. Let's think about this chapter and what is emphasized in the prayers of adoration that we might pray as well. First of all, prayers of adoration focus on who God is. They focus on who God is. Look again at verse 22. Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. This is an all-encompassing statement that God is unique. And because God is unique, he is uniquely in a category all by himself. Now let's think about some of the unique attributes of God when we say that he's in a category all by himself. God is unique in that he is infinite and eternal. On the opening pages of scripture, we find the simple declaration in Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God. It's a reminder to us that the God to whom we pray, that we are focusing our prayers of adoration on, there has never been a time when he was not. He has always been and he will always be. And there is none greater than God. Solomon's making the point that this God that we pray to is self-sufficient. He has no one who has authority or dominion over him. 
Now, it's clear in the Old Testament, there are many references to other gods, lowercase g, but those multiple references to the many gods and other gods are references to idols, idols that were made in the image of man or beast. And God made it clear that when we come to him in worship, when we bring our prayers of adoration, that there is to be no other God before him. There is none more glorious than God. So he is worthy to be exalted above all. God is the standard of holiness. He's the measure of perfection. He's the definition of love. And everything about him is good. God is unique also in that he is all-powerful. Continuing with the early themes in Scripture, think about the creation narrative. The Scripture is clear that God said, and it was so. Now, I say a lot of things, and it's not so when I say it, not when I just declare something. It may or may not happen because I'm not all-powerful, and neither are you. But God is all-powerful, and he formed the heavens and the earth with his word. Think about that. When we focus on God and we're praying prayers of adoration to him, if we believe on faith that the Bible is true and that God created all that there is out of nothing by his word, then in turn we're going to say nothing is too hard for God. Solomon knew that. We see the power of God in the Son of God when he healed the sick and he calmed the storm and he overcame sin and death. There is nothing that is good that is too hard for our God. And because he is all-powerful, no one can withstand God. Satan tried in heaven, and then he tried in the Garden of Eden, but he failed both times. Why? Because God has no rival. He is all-powerful. And God is unique in that he is absolutely holy. We sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In the words of the old hymn just this past Sunday, uh, anchored in Isaiah 6 and verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. And it's God's holiness by definition that refers to his absolute moral purity. The phrase appears two times in the Bible, once in Isaiah and then once in Revelation. And both times that it appears in the Bible, it is sung by heavenly creatures and it occurs in the vision of a man who was transported to the throne of God in Isaiah and then in John. Isaiah's response to the vision was a keen awareness of his own sinfulness. Even the angels in God's presence covered their faces and feet with four of their six wings in reverence and awe of God. John went on to describe these creatures as giving glory and honor to God continually around the throne. And this is the image that we get of heaven, that our great God that we are focusing on in prayer, he is continually receiving adoration at the throne, eternally so. And one day, 
we're going to be privileged to be there by the blood of Jesus to join in the heavenly chorus to God in all of who he is. And the holiness of God is eternal just as he is eternal. Now I want to give you a point of application or maybe I should say a practice run in each one of these points tonight. And the one that I want to give you here is Psalm 145. Now, we're not going to take a lot of time in Psalm 145, but I just want to say to you that it is a Psalm of David, and it is a a praising or a lifting on high or an exalting of the name of God. And David addresses God directly, personally, in a surrendered way, and with an unending focus, piling praise upon praise. So you want to know how to pray prayers of adoration and focus on who God is? Psalm 145 is an excellent template for it. In fact, if you will learn to pray scripture, you will never run out of a subject to pray on. You will never run out of material to focus your prayers if you will learn to pray the word of God. In Psalm 145, he says, I exalt you, my God, the King. So when we think about, think about our own prayer posture, when you go to your time of devotion in the morning, you can take a psalm like this, and you could even take one verse of the psalm, not the entirety of the psalm, but one verse of the psalm could be your topic of prayer devotion for the day. And you could say, today, O oh God, I'm going to focus on you as my God the king and I'm going to bless your name forever and ever and then from that your prayer can flow and you can think about how you want to apply that in your prayer to God and so on you can carry through the entire psalm in that way the psalms are wonderful and beautiful for that but in reality you can use nearly all the bible in the same type of application The second point I want to give you is that prayers of adoration focus on God keeping his promises. Look again now at the second part of verse 23. And it says, he is the God who keeps the gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. 1 Kings 8 and verse 24, you have kept what you promised to your servant, my father David. Verse 26 is an appeal. And he says, Please confirm what you promised. Now, this is a little bit of a mystery because God in his character is always going to keep his promises. So it's not as though God forgets a promise and and needs to be reminded. Or it's not as though uh, God is not going to be consistent with what he has promised. But there's a relationship aspect of this. And that's part of the mystery of how God designed prayer. Prayer is not just going through the motions. Prayer is not just a collection of words. Prayer is not just aimless talking. It's about your relationship with God. And when you come to him, you're able to relate to him and remember his promises. It's a reminder to you as much as it is a reminder to God. And it's an act of worship because you're saying, God, you're the promise keeper. You're the ultimate promise keeper. In fact, there has never been a promise that you made that you will not keep. And here are some of the specifics of it. 
and I didn't count them up myself, but I read somewhere that there are over 8,800 specific promises in the Bible. That's a lot of promises. And what does God do? God keeps his gracious covenant with his servants, according to verse 23. What's a covenant? A covenant's a promise between two or more parties to do certain things. And we use the word sometimes as a verb. Uh, So think about it. We covenant together in marriage, for example. Uh, The word testament is actually another word for covenant. So the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament, go hand in hand. They refer both to the content of God's Word in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but then the Old Covenant and the Law and the New Covenant in Christ. And in ancient times, covenants could be made either between two equal parties, so that'd be like if you and I made a covenant between each other, it'd be two equal parties in a sense, or between a king and a servant. The king would promise certain things. The subject would promise their loyalty to the king. And a covenant could be conditional or unconditional. So think about the covenants in Scripture. And this is not a comprehensive view of all of the covenants, but just by way of example, God made a covenant with Noah that he would never again destroy the world by a flood. And he gave the people instructions on how to live. God made a covenant with Abraham and he promised to make him a great nation. And through that great nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed with the focus of that being the Messiah. God made a covenant with Israel regarding the promised land. And God was faithful to keep that covenant. God made a covenant with David that he would have a descendant who would sit on the throne forever. This is part of what Solomon references here. And the only way that that would be true, ultimately, would be that that covenant finds its fulfillment, its ultimate fulfillment, in Jesus, the Son of God. He's the one who would sit on the throne of David forever and ever. And then God promised a new covenant in Jeremiah 31. He promised to turn the hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And Israel had trouble keeping their end of the covenant. But I tell you what, God's never had a problem keeping his end of a deal. We have issues keeping our promises, even simple little promises and commitments that we make. God makes these eternal commitments and he always fulfills them. And in the modern age, we fail to see the significance of a covenant because How do people view contracts today? That's a more common word that people would think about. What's the statement that people always use about contracts? Contracts are made to be broken. Is that not true? There's a legal maneuver somewhere. It doesn't matter how tight your contract is or how solid it is or how wordy it is or whatever. Somebody can find a way around it and break it, even if there's some cash involved to be able to come to a point of settlement. God has never been and will never be unfaithful to his covenant promises. Let's think about some of the promises that are given in the Bible to New Testament believers. God promises salvation to all who believe in Jesus. Is that not the core of everything else that we believe that uh, in this fellowship, John wrote, We enjoy the eternal life he has promised us. 
1 John 2 and verse 25? That if we call on the name of the Lord, that we can be saved? That no matter how wretched of sinners we are, or what our past was, or what our background was, or what our story was, that God's the God of grace and mercy, and he saves us? God promises also good for his children. Romans 8, 28, we know all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God promises comfort in difficulties. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 4, he comforts us in all our affliction. I'm so grateful that God meets us at our point of pain. He meets us at our point of sorrow. He meets us when we have questions and he gives us comfort. Why? Because he comforts us in all our affliction. He promised he would. And his Holy Spirit ultimately is the counselor that comes alongside of us and the comforter. And then God promises spiritual blessings in Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 3 says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. And God promises to finish the work that he has started in us. Philippians 1 and verse 6, he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion. God promises to supply all of our needs. Do you have a need tonight? God has promised that he will supply what you need. Philippians 4 and verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs. And then God promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And he fulfills all of these promises by his power. I read a piece by Paul David Tripp entitled, Awe, Why It Matters to Everything That We Think, Say, or Do. And in it, what he's doing is he's drawing the parallel of our awe and adoration of God and why this is so incredibly important for us. And here's what he says in part. He says, God's promises are meant to move and motivate us. They are meant to instill hope. They are meant to give us courage. They are meant to defeat feelings of loneliness, inability, and fear. They are meant to give us peace when things around us are chaotic and confusing. God's promises are meant to blow your mind and to settle your heart. They are gifts of God's grace to you. And in your heart of hearts, you know that you could have never earned the riches that God pours out on you. His promises are meant to leave you in awe of him and in wonder at the glory of his grace. His promises are designed to be the way that you interpret and make sense of life. And he said, I'm amazed at the numbers of believers I meet who are in some state of spiritual paralysis because they no longer believe the promises of God. Because they don't believe the promises of God, they don't have much reason to continue doing the radical things that God calls every one of his children to do. When doubt replaces awe, you will soon give up on all the disciplines of the Christian life. And he says this in conclusion. Your problem isn't that life is hard. Your problem is that you've lost your awe of the God who made the promises that once motivated you to deal with life. Do you stand with hope and courage on the awesome promises of God? Or do you walk through the quicksand of questioning their reliability? Point of application here would be Psalm 18 and verse 2 as an example. 
in this one verse, there are eight promises. For God is my rock. He's the foundation. You might hit the bottom and the end of all of your resources, but when you land on God as your foundation, you can't lose. He's your fortress and your deliverer. He's the one who will deliver you from the predicament that you're in. In him, you can take refuge. He will encircle you. He will protect you. He will care for you. He's your shield, and he's the horn of your salvation. He's your stronghold. And when you turn even just one verse like that into a, into a prayer of adoration, you're anchoring yourself in the promises of God. And listen, it doesn't matter if you feel like it or not. It, it doesn't matter what emotion you're running on on any given day because those come and go for all of us. We are very unpredictable creatures. But if we continually go to the promises of God, we're going to find stability. And we're going to find what we need to get us through. And then the third point, and finally, is that prayers of adoration focus on God hearing the petitions of his people. Let's go back now again to verse 28 of 1 Kings 8. And he says, listen to your servant's prayer and petition, Lord my God, so that you may hear the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. Verse 30, hear the petition of your servant. May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. May you hear and forgive. So over and over again, we've got this repetitive pattern here, asking the Lord to hear. Now, the Lord didn't all of a sudden go deaf. It's not as though in this dedication of the temple that, that God's not hearing or seeing what's going on because God sees everything. God hears everything. God is omnipresent. There's nothing that is outside of the watchful eye of God or the listening ear of God. But he's praying and he's asking over and over again, listen, hear, may you hear in heaven and act. May you hear over and over again. I actually like the message translation here where it says in a paraphrase that it's a prayer saying to God, listen from your home in heaven. It's this idea of us crying out to God, God, you are in heaven and we are on earth, but we want you to hear us. And when you pray, how do you imagine God receiving your prayers? Like really what's in your mind when you're thinking, I'm having this conversation with God, I'm in his word, I'm praying. How do you imagine that God is receiving your prayers? We've all had the experience of people not listening to us. Maybe you, maybe you have shared some good news to a friend or, or with a friend or a coworker, and maybe they're on their phone or they're in the middle of something else or they're not really hearing you. Maybe you've been on that doctor's visit and you're talking to your doctor and you tell them something you think is really important and they're not really listening in that moment. In fact, you might get to the point in your life that you wonder, is anybody listening? Does anybody care? Do I matter? We might be tempted to think. And the answer is yes. Someone is listening. He does care. And you do matter. And when you pray, God hears your prayers. But it gets even better than that. 
God listens at any time of the day or the night. God's never distracted on his phone. God is never impatient with you, and he doesn't grow weary when you're coming to him, saying something to him. And furthermore, even when you have prayed the same prayer over and over again, he still hears you and doesn't dismiss you. When you pray in adoration and you ask God to hear, it's in part a prayer of urgency. God's hearing, he's listening, but on your part, it's a sense of urgency because saying, God, this is important to me. I am your child. You are my father. Hear what I have to say. And there's an urgency about it, something you want the Lord to hear. When you pray in adoration and you ask God to hear you, it's also a prayer of faith. Friends, I think Solomon was fully confident that when he spread out his hands to heaven and he began to pray, that God was listening. And when you pray in adoration, you ask God to hear you, not only is it a prayer of urgency and a prayer of faith, but it is a prayer of dependence. You are depending on the fact that God will hear you. And when you pray in adoration and you ask God to hear you, it is a prayer for grace. He expresses the need for God to forgive. And when we pray, God hears us. So the issue is not, is God listening? The issue is, what's he hearing? Is he hearing you go through the motions? Not really engaged? Not really intently believing what you're praying for. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So when you pray a prayer and it's just a perfunctory prayer and you're going through the motions and you're not praying in faith, you're not going to get likely the answer that you wanted. But when you pray in faith, you're saying to God, I want your perfect will to be done in my life. I believe you can do it. And I believe you heard me. A point here of application. Several scriptures I want to encourage you to mark down. The first is Psalm 34 and verse 17. And it says, the Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. You know what that is? That's a promise. So it all goes together here. It's a promise, but then it's also a point of application in your petition. He hears you. That's what the Bible says. Psalm 66 in verse 19 and 20 says, But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he's not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. You know one of the things that's important about keeping track of what your prayer requests are? When God answers, you can give him the glory for answering you. You can give a testimony to other people. You know what? We prayed for that. We asked God for it. We cried out to God for God to listen. And you know what? God heard our prayers. He listened. He answered. Why? Because God hears us. And when you count on a promise like that, you can see the fruit of it. And then finally, Isaiah 59 and verse 1. Surely the arm of the Lord's not too short to save, nor his ear too deaf to hear you call. Well, I'm glad that the Lord's arm is not shortened to save us. 
I'm thankful that his ear is not too deaf to hear his call. Drop down just for a moment in 1 Kings 8 and verse 61. And I'm going to close with this. First Kings 8 and verse 61 says this. Be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commands as it is today. That was the message to the people. You be devoted to the Lord. You walk in what God says to do. And God will honor that. And we focus on prayers of adoration because God is worthy of exaltation. And we are in need of his power in our lives. How's your prayer life when it comes to adoration? If it's not where you know it could be, would you make a simple commitment to God to help you grow in it? It's a growing process. Prayer's a growing process. It's like exercising a muscle. You get stronger as you exercise it. Same way with prayer. It's hard work, but we grow in it. We make progress in it. And it's a shame that so many professing believers are still at the very beginning of their progress with Christ and in, in their relationship with God because they've not utilized the resources and the transforming power that is available to them. You do not have to exist in a ho-hum, going-through-the-motions type of Christian life. You can experience the power of God. That's the promise. Father, tonight, as we thought about what it means to be in awe of you, to pray prayers of adoration, I'd ask that you might forgive us for the times when we get caught up in ourselves and we do go through the motions or maybe we don't pray at all. And our fellowship with you is not where it needs to be. I thank you that every day is a new beginning. It's a fresh start. It's a renewed commitment. And I pray that you would revive each one of us. If we need reviving, that you would encourage each one of us who are walking faithfully with you through prayer and the word. And God, help us to grow in this work of prayer. And we know that you are transforming us through it. And you're doing so much in us and through us as we devote ourselves to you. Make us a praying people. The foundation of that prayer being prayers of adoration because you're worthy. Bless, Lord, the remainder of this week, all that you've placed in front of us. Lord, sustain us and encourage us along the way. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.